Today's scripture reading is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is the word of the Lord. Wow, what a text. I can't wait to unpack it together. Let's pray and get to work. Father, thank you that we get to consider such great things like Ephesians chapter 2, to be able to bend our minds and hearts around truths about your redemptive work, to consider what it means that you have sent your Son who was born to set us free. And God, my prayer today is that today in this very room, in the next few moments, that you would set people free, that folks would literally be moved from death to life, from bondage to freedom, from judgment to forgiveness. Oh, God, do that today, we pray. Please, we pray, come, 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 thou long-expected Jesus. And we ask this in, in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. We're in the season of Advent, a time that involves both reflection, looking back towards the first Advent, and then also anticipation, looking forward to the second Advent, the coming of Jesus. We are in the middle of this season where we are anticipating the coming of Jesus in the future and also celebrating the Advent of his birth the first time at Christmas. It's a time of year for us to reflect upon all of what God is for us in Christ and then also to agree with the hymn writer, Come, 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 thou long-expectant Jesus. The, the overall message of the Bible is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And we live in the era between the inauguration of redemption and the awaiting of the coming restoration, a time when Jesus will finalize our salvation, the plan, the good news of the gospel, well, he'll remove sin and curse and death in the world and bring us into his presence where there'll be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more sermons on sin, no more anything that's negative and it'd be all Jesus, all eternity, all forever with no possibility of it ever changing. And oh, we long for that day to come, don't we? We say, come, come thou long expected Jesus. 
During this season of Advent, we're using Charles Wesley's hymn that he wrote in the 1700s as our outline for the five weeks of December. Um, Come Thou Long Expecting Jesus was last week. This week is born to set thy people free. We're just going to continue to walk our way through this great hymn that was written for this time of year to help us as we both think of the past in terms of the first Advent and also look forward to the second. Last week we were in Galatians chapter 4. And kind of the one word that I wanted you leaving with was the word hope. I wanted you to to realize that when the Bible says that God sent His Son in the fullness of time, it means that in the sovereign plan of God, He orchestrated exactly when Christ would come. And that's a really important thing to remember, especially if the holiday season is particularly difficult for you. Maybe um, an empty seat around the table, a relationship mess, uh, a conflict in the family, a health issue, just a, a Christmas that's approaching that just isn't like Christmases before. And I just wanted to remind you last week, and I want to remind you again, that the same God who was on the throne when he sent Christ is the same God who's on the throne today. And the same God who's worthy to be trusted in our conversion and salvation is the same God who's worthy to be trusted today in your life. That he's got a sovereign plan. We also saw that God activated a a spiritual intervention. He sent His Son in order to redeem us from the curse of the law. We have a personal connection with Christ in that He understands what it's like to live in our world. He, He knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to sorrow. He knows what it's like to be tempted. And we also saw last week the way in which God has worked out His redemptive purposes this plan that he has to redeem things back to himself. And, and when you understand what Galatians 4 is saying, it helps us to live in this gap between the first advent and the second, between the coming of Christ the first time and the longing for him to come again. That's what Advent's all about. It's remembering and also anticipating. Now today we're going to take another step and we're going to talk about what it means for Jesus to have come to set his people free, that he was born to set his people free. Last week, the word that I wanted to kind of press into your soul was the word hope. This week, the word is power. I want you to see the, the beautiful connection that those who are followers of Jesus have in his death and his resurrection. For you, for you to be able to see that Jesus' birth marked the beginning of the end that sin and death have in terms of its stranglehold over the hum- human race and humanity, to realize that Jesus' birth set the stage for spiritual freedom, that indeed he was born to set his people free. But here's the thing. What does that really mean? What does it mean that he was born to set people free? Or maybe think of it another way. What was the spiritual freedom that Jesus brought? Well, that's why we're in Ephesians chapter 2. This text helps us to understand this spiritual freedom that Jesus bought for us, that he brought by his coming in this first advent. This text, verses 1 to 10, is some of the richest content in all of the Bible regarding spiritual transformation and how it happens in the person and work of Christ. Now, I just want to give you a, a fair warning that the text today is loaded with significant and in-depth theology. So if you are a lover of theology, you're going to love Ephesians 2. If you think you know, theology is kind of boring, I would first tell you that, no, it's not. Um, pastors are. Uh, theology isn't boring. Uh, we are. I am. So uh, hopefully I can change that perspective for you today. But what we're going to do is plumb the depths 
of the beauty of what it is that God did for us in Christ. For many of you, what I'm going to share is not new, but oh, I hope it's fresh, if you know the difference. It won't be new content per se, but I hope it hits you in a fresh and significant way that you could leave today with just this sense of, God, I can't believe this is what you've done for me. He was born to set his people free. Let me show you how. The text begins by identifying a former bondage. Set thy people free. Free from what? Well, Ephesians 2 tells us that what we are set free from is the bondage of our innate and natural sinfulness. In other words, let me state this very bluntly. What did Jesus come to set people free from? What did he come to set them free for? He came to set them free from themselves. Listen to me. Jesus came to set you free from you. From the inclinations of your heart, from the innate, natural rebellion that takes place within your soul. And the first advent is about the inauguration of that event. And the second advent, when Jesus comes again, is when we long for him to return and restore all things to himself. That everything that's wrong with the world, the brokenness of our culture, the the, the fundamental flaws that exist within the human heart, that one day Jesus is going to come and make all of that right. Now, Ephesians 2, though, is not about this innate sinfulness per se. The the innate sinfulness is the backdrop. The real point of Ephesians 2 is verse 5. So look down at that verse. It says, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. That's the point of the text right there. The point of Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, is verse 5, that we are made alive together with Christ. With Christ. We'll unpack this phrase later on. Paul's point is that he's linking our experience or the potential of our experience to that of the person and work of Jesus that he identified even in verses 19 through 21 of chapter 1. Look at those verses, that 1, 19 to 21. Notice the power connected to Christ's work and his reign. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one that is to come. The idea is he is ruling and reigning and when he rose again from the dead he declared victory over sin and death and hell and the devil and said this world belongs to me and those who know and name the name of christ share in that power and in that victory that's the point paul will connect all of this for us so we'll get there but we have to start with the problem of our bondage we have to start with bad news verse one uses a very important term that serves as the main description for our spiritual problem. Follow along in your copy of God's Word. It says, and you were, what's the next word? Dead. That's a very, very, very important word. He describes our spiritual bondage as being dead. What does this mean? It does not mean physical. Although physical death is a part of the bondage, Paul is using the term in a metaphorical sense of the alienation that we as humans experience from the one who gives life, namely God. 
when it comes to our spiritual relationship with God, we are spiritually dead. There is no spiritual life within us. We are alienated from God. The picture is bleak and the picture is helpless. It means that our natural disposition in life is that we are born sinners. That the natural inclination of our heart is to be in rebellion against God. And the tragedy of the human race is that while we are alive physically, not everyone is alive spiritually. As you go into the community this week, and maybe you're in large crowds at a shopping mall or just driving through a parking lot, I want you just to behold with your eyes, I want you to see the world a little differently, to realize that you are among a sea of alive people, but they're not all alive. That many, many, many people are walking through this holiday season as walking dead men and walking dead women. You may be here today, you're physically alive, but spiritually, you're dead. In fact, the Bible says that's the essence of who we are. That's how we start in this world. And it's not by mistake that the Bible uses this term dead because one cannot be partially dead. You're either dead or alive. The difference is profound. And what Paul does is he connects this concept, the spiritual truth, to the spiritual condition of men and women. In fact, the problem isn't just what we do. The problem is our very nature, our very being, the very essence of who we are. In the book of Colossians, chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul says this, When you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he doesn't mean just physical flesh, you could also render that, the uncircumcision of your very nature. It describes the essence of who we are. And, And the bad news in the Bible, which actually then becomes good news, is something I think that we all inherently know, is that there's something fundamentally broken within us, something flawed within the human heart. At the core of our being, something isn't right. Left to ourselves, left on our own, the Bible tells us that we would never seek after God, we would never understand God, we would never have the fear of God before our eyes. Romans chapter 3, verses 11 through 18 tell us that, meaning that we are alive physically, but we are dead spiritually. It means that the core of who we are, something is fundamentally wrong Left to ourselves, we wouldn't seek after God, we wouldn't have right motives, we would pursue our own agenda, the tension that we feel in our hearts to do things that are wrong, the temptations, the lure to go after things that we know we're not supposed to do, and even though we know the consequences of those things, and even though we've experienced the consequences of those things, or seen the consequences in other people, we're still attracted to that, we still want to go after that. Where does that come from? Paul says it comes from the essence of spiritual death. It's part of the effect of the fall. It's the It's the problem of the human condition. And so the Bible paints a a, a pretty dark picture here. This is one of the reasons why Christianity, or the message of the good news, is at first bad news, and at first it can even be a bit offensive. And if you're here today, and you're you're like, I came to come to a Christmas service. You're like, Merry Christmas, dude. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's just pretty pretty downer and it is at one level and you need to know that, that at first the bible is is rather offensive it, yet it's a good kind of offensive in that it tells us who we really are because if left to ourselves let's be honest we would compare ourselves to other people and we would think that we're doing pretty well we would think hey my motives are better than most and the things that i do are better than others and we begin to but we would know somewhere in the core that even the good that we do is often done because of what we get from it not just to do good for good's sake we do good for what it gives us The Bible says that we're in bondage. Our bondage is this spiritual deadness. It means that we have no ability to earn God's approval. 
This deadness causes us to be naturally uninterested in the things of God. That the natural bias of our heart is to not desire to be like God, nor to live a life that's blessed by God. That's, that's why when you think about inviting someone to the Christmas musical this weekend, that there's a natural bias that people are going to have against coming to something like that internally. That there, in order for that invitation to happen, for them to happen, it's, it's just even a miracle for someone to say yes to that because the natural inclination of the human heart is to say, I don't need God, I don't need the Bible, I don't need someone telling me what to do, I'm pretty good, I'm better than most, and if you really got to know me, you'd love me like I really should be loved. When the reality is deep in our core, we're fundamentally flawed. So the Bible pictures humankind, humanity or mankind as this group of people who are physically alive, but spiritually there is, they are dead. That's our plight. It's our bondage. Now, everything else in verses 1 to 3 simply put color on this spiritual deadness. So our, our spiritual condition is dead, and then Paul unpacks it a little bit further. Notice he says that you are dead in trespasses and sins. At first you might think, well, there's, there's two different things, trespasses and sins. And really he means one, one thing. Paul's probably linking with the word trespass here linking the redemptive work of Christ to those trespasses because in chapter 1 and verse 7 he says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses so Paul's probably linking chapter 1 and chapter 2 by using that word then he adds the word sins in an all-inclusive sort of way so that we understand this key point that spiritual deadness in the core of who and what we are is not just a heart motivation it actually surfaces in the actual things that we do so it happens in the words that we say, the, the, the actions that we take, that our deadness is not inactive rebellion. It's not passive rebellion. It's active rebellion. We are unable to do what is right, but we are fully able to do what is wrong. No wonder the Bible describes this as slavery. That's why if you're here today and you're without Christ and you've ever had this thought, I've got great news for you. You've had this thought before. Why do I do the things that I do and why don't I stop? The Bible answers that. And the Bible says the reason that that happens is because what you do comes from your heart. And the one thing, you can modify your behavior for a while. You could change your circumstance. You could change your relationships. You could change your job. You could turn off all of the resources and all the things that, 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 that you think are causing you to fall. But at the end of the day... Your heart will still be there, and the one thing you can't fix, the one thing you can't change is your heart. That's the only thing that God, that's the thing that you need God to be able to fix for you. Our deadness is in our trespasses and our sins. So practically, our bondage to spiritual deadness is expressed through the inability to do anything except sin. So human beings are powerless to do anything but sin. Some of you say, well, wait a minute. Even a lost person can do good things. And I would say, yeah, they may do good things, but they're not doing good things for God's sake. They're doing good things because of what they get from them. And even that becomes sinful. Anything touched by our sinful agenda thereby becomes a sinful act, even if it seems at first to be good. Secondly, there are powers that are set against us that keep us in bondage. Not only do we do things that are actively in rebellion, secondly, there are powers that are set against us, and there's three of them. There is the world, the devil, and the flesh. Verse 2, the world. He says, following the course of this world. 
This means that there is a gravitational pull in the world in a way that is contrary to the very heart of God, meaning that the culture is set against God's way. So understand, there's a gravitational pull. It's an uphill climb, if you will, and always the world is trying to pull people back from God's way. The world is broken, and as a result, the world that you and I enter every single day of every single week, of every single month, of every single year, it is not a neutral place. It is hostile. It is contrary to the very essence and the heart of God, the world. Secondly, the devil. Verse 2 says, following the prince of the power of the air. So Paul identifies that there is a real spiritual battle taking place and that behind the landscape of this culture set against obedience is the devil who's also not only luring us into temptation, but cheering us along as we rebel against God. He's calling us, cheering us, go, 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 all the way to hell. That's what the enemy desires. Cheering us on in his desire to defame the name of the sovereign God of the universe. The devil wants to take as many people into eternal destruction with him as possible because he hates the glory of God, he hates the name of God, he hates the people of God, and thereby is cheering us on as we are tempted. Go, take it, do it. Because he hates God's glory and he hates us. So the world, the devil, those are external forces. There's also an internal one, verse 3, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So if the external forces weren't enough, Paul also tells us there's an internal force that's working against us. The focus here is on an internal battle that human beings face, not only a battle from without, not only a supernatural battle with the devil, but also a battle that comes from within. You know this. This is the battle that happens when a wrong thought or a temptation or just a vile thing comes across your mind and heart and you think, where in the world did that come from? Where did that come from? That came from the presence of sin in the world, the flesh. And what happens is the sinful flesh colludes with our passions and our desires to lead us toward the wrong thing. So this picture, friends, is is pretty dark. We're not going to stay here, but it is a dark image. The idea of spiritual bondage is overwhelming because of the cooperation of the culture, the enticement of the devil, and the lure of the flesh The fact of the matter is, is the culture is biased towards sin. The devil is constantly looking for ways to trip up people. Our flesh is always ready to be tempted and willing, and we have no power to do anything about it. And that is not all that there is yet even to say. It even gets worse. Merry Christmas. Paul leads us to the ultimate statement regarding the nature of our bondage. He says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, meaning that this problem is not just regarding what we do. The problem is that there's a holy God and he must deal with the sinful condition of mankind and therefore in this condition, if unresolved, mankind faces the wrath of God. So from a spiritual standpoint, human beings, we, you, are in a scary place. Spiritually, we are lifeless. The world is pulling us. The devil is cheering us. The flesh is tempting us. 
and the judgment of God is looming, and the natural condition of mankind is not good. It is full of bondage. And some of you are here today, and you know exactly what bondage is like. And I'm glad you're here. Because the next two words in Ephesians 2, 4 are so unbelievably liberating. Are you ready? Here they are. But God. Say that with me. But God. Do you love those two words? Oh, you ought to love those two words. Same like you love them. But God. Lean to your neighbor. Give him a fist bump and say, but God. Do it. Let's do it. Come on. Some of you aren't doing it. Why you... I'm, I'm too proper to do a fist bump in church. Come on, right? But God, right? But God. With these two words, the Apostle Paul highlights that the rescuer has arrived. Despite what seemed like the hopelessness of our condition, the plight of the world, the power of the devil, the collusion of our flesh, and the impending judgment, the Bible shines a bright light into this hopeless scenario and says, Hallelujah, there is hope, but God is going to rescue His people. And if you want to do something encouraging sometime, just do a search in the words, but God, throughout the Bible, and you'll find some unbelievable moments of, of redemption and rescuing. I'll give you a few, just to whet your appetite. In Genesis 8, 1, regarding Noah and the ark, but God remembered Noah and the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. Another but God moment when Joseph was unfairly treated by his brothers and he was trying to process with them how God intended it for his own good. He said this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Oh, some of you need to embrace that term. Regarding the death of Jesus in Acts chapter 10, Luke says this, and, and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. And then here it comes. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. It's beautiful. And then for those of you who are discouraged and weary, you're in a season of depression and just being downcast. There's a but God statement for you as well in 2 Corinthians 7. Paul said this, For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. We were afflicted at every turn. And I love this next phrase. Listen to it. Fighting without and fear within. That's a great phrase, isn't it? You ever been there? Fighting out, fighting without and fear within. And then he said this, But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. You see, the Bible is filled with but God kind of moments, and they're meant to show us the beauty and the graciousness of God. You see, what Paul is talking about in Ephesians chapter 2 here is actually not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our sin. It's not about our bondage. At the end of the day, all those things are part of the equation. At the end of the day, though, what it's really about is God. It is about the manifold display of His mercy and His grace such that His creatures and human beings and all of heaven would look at Him and say, Oh my goodness, how lovely and how merciful You are. Ephesians 2.4 says this, that He being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. So why does God rescue dead sinners? Why does He save people who can never save themselves? He does so to demonstrate His mercy and His grace. It is to platform His own glory 
on their rebellion. So you need to know that this Advent season ought to be a time where we ponder the beauty and the glory of a God who rescued us from our hopeless condition. You ought to gather with your family and celebrate this season and be reminded that were it not for the grace of God, you'd have nothing. So, there's bondage. The second thing that we find here is that there's new life. And this is the point of Ephesians chapter 2. What does this freedom look like? Verse 5 reiterates the negative dynamic that we've just covered. Paul repeats it for emphasis and then hits his main point with this pericope in chapter 2 and verse 5. Read it aloud with me. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Paul's point relates to this matter of what it means to be made spiritually alive. That little phrase, made us alive, is what this text is all about. Our spiritual dead condition was conquered. Listen, our spiritual dead condition was conquered by a spiritual resurrection. A miracle that God did to us conditioned on nothing but His grace. The bondage of our deadness was defeated by another more compelling, more glorious, more powerful force that the Bible calls regeneration. The making of that which was dead to be alive. That phrase, made alive, is very important in the New Testament. In the Greek language, in this text, it's the first of three aorist tense verbs, which means not something that happens in the future or something that's ongoing, but rather something that's completed, a decisive act in the past. Made alive is the first aorist. There's two other ones. In verse 6, he raised us up. There's the second one, and seated us, there's the third one, with him in heavenly places in Christ. In other words, those who have received Christ are thereby in Christ. So in his resurrection, we share in that power. Regeneration means to be made alive. It is the first action of God upon our lives. It is the miracle of being born again. It is the rescue where God brings to life spiritually that which was previously dead. It's the same thing that Jesus talks about in John chapter 3. When he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. So unless he's born again, unless he's regenerated, he can't see the kingdom. Does it? Does it? That does not mean just see, like, enter into it. It means he won't even recognize that it's there. He won't even have the spiritual eyesight to see it. It's also what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3 when he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Or Titus 3. He saved us not because of the works done by us in righteousness, but according by his own mercy, according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ. So, so what does it mean to be born again? What does regeneration mean? Here's what it means. It is God 
creating new life in you by means of the Holy Spirit based upon the work of Christ as you place your faith in Jesus Christ. I worked hard on that single sentence. Let me restate it. Every one of those words is important. It is God creating new life in you by means of the Spirit and based upon the work of Christ as you place your faith in Jesus. So regeneration involves a Spirit-born new birth, John chapter 3, 3, and it involves belief. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. And as I understand that great moment, it seems to me that what happens is that God awakens the heart, we see the beauty of the cross, and we are compelled to believe. For those of you who have received Christ, think of that moment when you heard the gospel for the first time. Just think of that. Just put yourself where you're there. I was like seven years old in a vacation Bible school. This old woman with this, this, this book about um, the gospel was unfolding the story. And as she told the message about the cross, I was raised in a Christian home. I had heard this contextually and informationally. But suddenly something about the way that she was communicating it, a light bulb went on. And I realized, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner like that. And I need a Savior. And my heart was strangely drawn to this thing called the good news. In that process, my eyes are being lifted. The shades are being drawn up and I am seeing and in seeing I am believing and in believing I am converted. That is what the new birth is. This last week we had received news of a number of two of people who received Christ this week and received an email from one of our staff reflecting on that this was sent to him from a spouse and this person said amazing he gave his heart and life to christ this week and his heart he's hardly come up for air he's burning through my library and reading his bible and then he says this he's been tempted but he's dedicated in his fight and wants to mature in his faith i see in him that burning desire that i have his eyes are clear that's it i can't believe how dull they were before he is a new creation that's what the new birth is it is that suddenly your eyes are clear this is the means of our rescue from bondage this is the means by which we are delivered from our slavery of our spiritual deadness it is jesus standing at the tomb of my self-centered God-hating, rebellious heart and calling into that tomb, he says, Mark, Rogup, come forth. And suddenly I hear his voice. And I'm strangely drawn and I walk out of that tomb and there he is and he's called me and invited me and he says, Mark, Rogup, come forth. And in that call, Jesus calls me out of the tomb of my own self-destruction and I walk into the arms of his embrace and I become his child and he becomes my savior and he'll never ever let me go because he was the one that called me out of the tomb of my own self-destruction. That is the new birth, friends. That is what it means that Jesus sets people free. That's what we celebrate in the inauguration of His coming, His first advent, that He entered the world in order to draw people to Himself. And that's what we mean when we talk about His second advent, longing for Him to come and restore all things back to His rightful claim of ownership. What I'm not talking about here is just merely joining a religion or becoming a Christian Regeneration is something more. It means that you are a totally different person from the inside out. It means that there's life within you. 
It means that God has set you free. And God does all of this. Not because we're worthy. He does it because He's worthy. Look at verse 7. So that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So why does God do all of this? Why does He call people from the tomb of their own self-destruction? Because they're worthy? Because they're great objects of His love? Because of what He will get from them? No, the Bible tells us that the reason that God does all of this in order so that He might show on the platform of their lives the immeasurable riches of His grace and His kindness to us. Therefore, the first advent reminds us that every spiritual blessing that we have is only because of the grace and mercy of God. It was grace that set us free. It was mercy that set us free. And Jesus was born in order to make that freedom possible. All of this happens, friends, by grace and grace alone. And this is how Paul summarizes it in verses 8 and 9. He brings to summary now what he's saying. And it is this, a very familiar text. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. That's the point. Not the results of work so that no one may boast. So this text tells us that salvation is first and foremost a gift. Secondly, that our works do not contribute to the rescue. And third, boasting is absolutely excluded. Because what in the world are you going to say about yourself? God rescued you from you. You see, that's the hope today. If you're here and you're without Christ, you need to know that the best news in all the world is this. You're the problem. I'm not joking. That is liberating for you to realize the problem isn't your parents. It's not your upbringing. It's not your relationships. It's not your job. It's not your DNA. The problem at the end of the day is you. You're the problem. And when you come to that realization, the great news is the Bible has a solution for your problem of you, and it's Jesus. He comes and takes your heart and changes you from the inside out and makes you a person you can never be on your own. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord... You say, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Why do you have to believe that he raised him from the dead? You know why? Because believing that he raised him from the dead is the means by which you're going to be raised from the dead. Because the same God who calls Jesus out of the tomb calls you out of your own tomb. Believing that God raised him from the dead, the Bible says you will be saved. This is the miracle of the new birth, that by believing in Jesus, you have life in his name. This is what the first advent is all about. It's what the second advent is all about. It's what the gospel is all about. So let me appeal to you today, to those of you who have not crossed the line from death to life, you've not crossed the line from unbelief to belief, If today what I'm saying to you somehow makes sense, and if within you you sense there's a longing, I want to, I want to lean into this, I want to believe in this, I want to lean towards this, I want you to realize that God in His providence has you here today because He's in the process of unfolding the blinders of your eyes and helping you to see And dear friend, if there is a longing within your heart to give up on the self-destructive ways of your own doing and instead run to Christ, my plea with you would be this. Do not wait one more day. 
You ought to run to him now. You ought to run to him today and cross the line from death to life, from unbelief to belief, from being unconverted to being converted, from being a God-hater to being a God-follower, from being someone who's uh, under the judgment of God to someone who's being now the friend of God. And the Bible says you do that by confessing that Jesus is Lord and opening your heart and saying, I'm done with me. I need you. Come. I've made a mess of my life. I'm coming to you, Jesus. That's how people are born again. And today I want you, I want you, oh, how I want you to be born again. To those of you who grew up in Christian homes or you're so familiar with the term born again, I want to caution you because you may know the content of the gospel. You may be familiar with the word born or the phrase born again or the word regeneration. But my question is not whether or not you know the content. My question is whether or not you are fundamentally new within your heart. I'm not asking if you understand the concepts of regeneration. I'm asking if you are genuinely the kind of person who's experienced the transformation of a new heart and new desires and new affections and a new master. Someone who looks at the world through different eyes. You look at the scriptures through a different lens. You look at a year-end bonus through a different framework. Whereas the world would say, awesome, flat-screen TV. You look and say, awesome, unreached people groups. I just went to meddling there, didn't I? You look at everything differently. You look at your life through a different lens because you've got new desires and new longings and a new perspective on life. And I want you to think about with me today what it really means to be genuinely regenerate. For those of you who are genuinely converted, a message like this, a text like this, ought to leave you incredibly humbled and supremely grateful. I found myself sitting alone this week writing this sermon thinking the kind of thoughts that I hope you will think now, things like this. Why did you set your love on me, God? Why did you call my name? Why did you choose me? And those questions are only answered by God himself. But one thing you can know for sure, that whatever the reason, it was not because we were worthy of His love. It is only because of His grace and His kindness. And this gift of grace is so amazing and so generous and so kind and so eternally important that the only response from people who get it ought to be, thank you for rescuing me from me. Jesus was born to set you free from you. And that is absolutely unbelievable. And that's what I want everyone to know. What it means to be truly free. Jesus was born to set his people free. Thank you, Jesus, that this is what you have done Thank you that you have poured out grace upon grace upon grace to us. Oh, thank you for the overwhelming reality 
of what it means to have been saved from ourselves. And Lord, I pray today there, there has to be a number of people in this room right now who are alive physically but dead spiritually. And I pray that as your word burns in their heart even right now like a fire in their soul, that you would draw them to yourself. And even now they might simply cry out to you and say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I made a mess of my life. I'm done with me and I need you right now to come in and be my Lord and Savior. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I believe you were raised from the dead. So come, 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 Jesus. Come save me. Oh Lord, I pray that there'd be a a harvest of people on this on this Sunday that would acknowledge your name and today in faith, belief, in belief, put their faith in you. Lord, regenerate people today by your power and through your spirit. And while we're just in an attitude of prayer before we close, I want you to know that there are going to be people up here afterwards who would like nothing more than to pray over you if you're spiritually struggling or there's something about this regeneration thing that you need to talk about or if your life is such a mess or if you're just so weary, they're here today to pray and help you because you are not meant to walk alone and this day is not by mistake. God has you here for a reason. The question is, what is it and what is he saying? So come, lo, thou long expecting Jesus. Come, Minister grace upon grace to us. Thank you that you were born to set us free. Let me pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There'll be some folks up here afterwards. Love to pray with you today, okay? God bless you, Couch Park. I love you.